Hi friends, Nairi here. This work is my passion, and it is picking up. Articles, streams, podcast appearances, consults on documentaries, major progress on my manuscripts, and it merits my full attention. Piecemeal freelance work is unpredictable and infrequent, and book royalties ebb, as they have been recently. But that's where you come in. Every little bit that you support here helps support me and keep me working for you. Over on Patreon, we're now at $731 a month with lots of stretch goals ahead. Physical rewards start at $800. But if I got to $2,000 a month, I would be confident in my ability to support myself independently, housed, lights on, able to buy needed books, apps, and ad space, and make this my full-time focus. So if you enjoy my work, subscribe on Twitch or sign up today at patreon.com slash riversidewings. In a time when historical awareness is vitally critical to issues of current events, civic engagement, and more, your support will help me bring my professional training, plus my passion as someone who started out in fandom before academe, to the masses. So even as we read the novels, watch the movies, play the games, let's round out our appreciation of the real people, ideas, events, and more that go into making them. Let's understand where they fall short and better enjoy them where they soar. History is funnier, messier, stranger, more interconnected, and yes, gayer than you might have thought. So gather round. Let's explore and enjoy it together. Thanks again for your support. I love you all. Thank you for being the wind beneath my wings. This week on Friday Night History, To Whom Does the Stone Wall Belong? How the Aftermath of the American Civil War Collided with the Japanese Civil War. This episode of Friday Night History was recorded before a live Twitch audience at twitch.tv slash riversidewings. Can you hear them cheering? Subscribe to catch future recording sessions, gaming streams, and more. Please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash riversidewings. Your support makes this all possible. Salutations, you fantastic denizens of the internet. This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian, and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke. <laughs> Episode 31. To Whom Does the Stonewall Belong? Let me open this episode with a question. Where do the weapons of ended wars go? Think about that for a moment. Where do the ships, the guns, the planes, the knapsacks, and the miscellanea of military equipment go when a war ends? They don't just vanish, so where do they go? This week we're going to be talking about one case of a war's aftermath, which is the fate of the rebel ironclad Stonewall. It was a ram built in France, commissioned on the open ocean, and only then, at the tail end of the American Civil War, did its story begin. And yes, yes indeed, it found its way to Japan smack dab in the middle of the Boshin War, where it proceeded to cause a diplomatic incident owing to American neutrality. And I should probably back up and start from the beginning, huh? The ironclad ram Stonewall was built at Bordeaux, by Armand Brothers. Its keel was laid in 1863, and it was commissioned at sea in 1864. 
For podcast listeners, check out the image, a colorized one that's new to me, on the blog post version, to get a sense of the shape and scale of the thing. It was a very advanced ship for its time, along with its armor and armament, and also had a ram in its prow, which equipped it to ram and sink less heavily protected vessels. Under the command of rebel skipper Thomas Jefferson Page, it sailed across the Atlantic, getting shadowed by Union warships the entire time, but by the time it got to North American waters, its crew discovered that the Civil War was over. Page handed the ship over to the Spanish colonial authorities in Cuba, who bought it for $16,000, selling it to the U.S. authorities for the same amount. After some repairs, a U.S. crew sailed Stonewall North, to U.S. waters, where it was laid up in the Washington Navy Yard, where it sat until 1867. In 1867, a Tokugawa shogunate military delegation under Ono Tomogoro and Matsumoto Judayu visited the U.S. in search of military equipment to add to the shogunate's growing arsenal in service with its modern army and navy. Over the course of their visit, they met with President Johnson, Secretary of State William H. Seward, and influential Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, who who chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The delegation found Stonewall in the Washington Navy Yard, and an agreement was struck by which the shogunate would pay for half the price then and the other half upon delivery of the ship in Japan. Under a Japanese flag, but crewed by a U.S. Navy crew, Stonewall set off for Japan. It arrived at the anchorage of Shinagawa on 24 April 1868 after a long and eventful cruise which included getting refueled at Honolulu on credit. Those of you who have been longtime listeners of the podcast might already have guessed it. This was in the early days of the Boshin War. There was something of a power vacuum in terms of a recognized national government in Japan at the time. Shortly after the outbreak of war outside Kyoto at the Battle of Tobafushimi, the U.S. declared its neutrality. To underline this, I think the declaration merits quoting in full. Quote, Notice. Having been officially informed that war exists in Japan between His Majesty the Mikado and the Tycoon, and being desirous of taking measures to secure the observance of a strict neutrality on the part of the citizens of the United States of America, I give notice to such citizens that active participation in this war, by entering into service, the sale or charter of vessels of war, or transport ships for the transportation of troops, the transportation of troops, military persons, military dispatches, arms, ammunition, or articles, contraband of war, to or for either of the contending parties, and similar acts constitute, according to international law, a breach of neutrality and may therefore be treated as hostile acts. Persons in such military service would subject themselves to the rules of war, while ships and other means of conveyance engaged in a breach of neutrality would render themselves liable to capture and confiscation, which rule may extend to cargo belonging to neutrals. Such breaches would also involve the citizen and vessel in the danger of forfeiting claim to the protection of their government, as well as the rights and privileges granted by the treaty between the United States and Japan. R. B. Van Valkenburg, Minister-Resident of the United States in Japan. Legation of the United States and Japan, Hyogo, Kobe, February 18, 1868.
This should give you a fuller sense of the difficult position of Minister Resident Robert Bruce Van Valkenburg when the Stonewall arrived. I should sidebar here and say that the Minister Resident is the title of the U.S. diplomat who later became the Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to Japan. I should also add that the tycoon that's mentioned in the quote is the shogun's civil title. The English term tycoon comes from this title. So, Van Valkenburg himself was a Union Army veteran and had commanded the 107th New York Infantry Regiment at the Battle of Antietam, so I wonder what was on his mind when news of the ship's arrival reached him. At any rate, he was in an impossible position. The ship was powerful and cutting-edge, literally, if you think about how it was a ram, and to hand it over to either the ex-Shogun's Navy or the nascent Imperial Navy would have tipped the balance and thrown the outcome of the war. In the weeks that followed the ship's arrival and the outbreak of the Boshin War, this increasingly became a bone of contention. Van Valkenburg received delegates from the Imperial government insisting on the handover of Stonewall to their side, especially once Edo was handed over, later in the spring. Meanwhile, the Shogunate Navy, under the operational command of Admiral Enomoto Takeaki, had left Shinagawa to take refuge in Tateyama across Edo Bay, but had not forgotten about the warship that was slated to join their own fleet. Enomoto himself called on Van Valkenburg more than once to press for the Stonewall's handover. Samuel Pelman Boyer, a U.S. Navy doctor attached to the USS Iroquois, which was then in Japan, and about whom I wrote in episode 6, wrote the following in his diary on the subject. Quote, Therefore, to whom does the Stonewall belong? Does she belong to Satsuma or the Tycoon? Were the minister to deliver her up to Satsuma, and should it happen that the Tycoon is successful in the end and flogs the Mikado's party, he might demand the Stonewall. The same case might happen were he, the minister, to deliver it up to the Tycoon. So the best plan is for us to claim her until the Japanese settle their little trouble. Unquote. Van Valkenburg wrote to his superiors in Washington, notably to Secretary of State William H. Seward, to report on these developments. Seward had been there when the Shogunate delegation visited the Washington Navy Yard and selected Stonewall for purchase, so he was familiar with the situation. However, in an era when messages traveled slowly, there wasn't much of anything that Seward could do urgently with regards to the situation in Japan. Distance had his hands tied. The decision was Van Valkenburg's to make, because as with most American diplomats of the time, distance meant he had broad latitude in what courses of action were available to him. So, with a civil war raging and a cutting-edge weapon that could tip the balance, Van Valkenburg chose neither side, opting instead to keep the ship under American control. But if it was going to operate under an American flag, it needed an American crew. Given that the war was still dragging on by midsummer, it would need a good officer to lead, and on 1 July 1868, it just so happened that an American warship had just arrived in Yokohama with a one-of-a-kind one commander aboard, who was Van Valkenburg's choice for the job. Meet William Barker Cushing. He was the brother of Alonzo H. Cushing, noted for his stand at the angle during Pickett's charge. Will was famous in his own right, 
during the Civil War for his naval exploits and was what some have called the first SEAL, not least of why being his role in the operation to blow up the rebel ironclad Albemarle. He arrived in Japan as the commanding officer of the USS Maumee, an aging vessel whose command he nearly did not accept. Cushing was put in nominal charge of Stonewall, and in order to save expenses, the original caretaker crew was dismissed and naval personnel were detached from the other U.S. Navy ships then in port. Now, Seward did have a lot to say in response to this, when Van Valkenburg's reports finally made their way back to Washington. The ship had been sold to the Shogun's government before even leaving Washington, so the ship wasn't American anymore and couldn't be reappropriated or repossessed at all. But given prior anti-foreign sentiment and recent incidents where foreigners were attacked, there was no guarantee that the nascent imperial government would respect the lives and property of American citizens in Japan, so Van Valkenburg counter-argued for the necessity of holding on to the ship. Eventually, Seward relented, and backed Van Valkenburg's unilateral action. And for the rest of the war, while American sentiments in Japan, as seen in the work of Boyer, were decidedly pro-Shogun, the Stonewall stayed in Yokohama under an American naval ensign. The next march, with the Imperial forces closing on the Ezo Republic, the state formed in what's now Hokkaido by the remnants of the Tokugawa forces, with the war all but decided, Van Valkenburg ended American neutrality and handed the ship over to the Imperial Navy, which immediately put it to work on the front lines. Word spread rather quickly, and the ship, now named Kotetsu, took long enough that the Ezo Republic forces tried one last desperate attempt to take it by capture. The ensuing battle, the Battle of Miyako Bay, was a daring attempt at capturing the ship on the high seas and included troopers of the much-vaunted Shinsengumi, but ended in failure, partly owing to weather. Kotetsu was there when Hakodate fell, and the war ended. And that is how a ship built for one civil war fought in two. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, questions? Friday Night History is a weekly historical romp with me, your favorite history dyke, Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian. Our theme is Buga Blue, written by Craig Friedrich, performed by the U.S. Army Blues, and available royalty-free at pixabay.com music. This and more is made possible by listeners like you to support Friday Night History and the rest of my work. Sign up today at patreon.com slash riversidewings, or subscribe at twitch.tv slash riversidewings, and catch gaming, historical banter, and episode recordings. You can find my audio fiction and other short work for sale at riversidewings.itch.io and check out my novel at bit.ly slash graydawnebook. Gray with an E. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next week, Emperor Tolbu. Why 1868 saw two, yes, two, emperors in Japan. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for. I'll see you around. <laughs>